son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! fellow ramblers. I'm Andrew Gerdian and welcome to the first 2021 episode of Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast. Happy New Year to you all and particularly to the two chaps who are joining me today, my co-hosts as always Joshua Glenn and our very first guest, friend, fellow Warwick film grad and writer Dan Kelly. I've got a little bubbly here chaps to cheers in the New Year's with you. So, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, buddy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, my friend. It's good to see you guys. Looking very well this year. Hope it's been treating well you so much. Yeah, yeah, so far, so, so far, so good. <laughs> Ooh, I think that wine's gone it's off. A, it's, mm, it's a bit of a, it's a half three in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Sip of wine. Hey, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> How are your New Year's chaps? Yeah, they were fun. It was, it was good. Pretty low key. Didn't do an awful lot. Played, played a bit of chess. Opened my whiskey tasting set. It was a very um, fake adult New Year this year. I like that. Chess and whiskey. <laughs> How about you, Dan? Uh, well, I, I've been obviously I've been back in Ireland for the last few months. Um, so in sort of a complete opposite to your situation, mine was like a. Like, I generally would be back in Ireland anyway, but it was a complete reversion. I felt like I, I, I did. <laughs> so for instance. The wine that we've just used to cheers in the new year, I've just stolen from my parents' liquor cabinet. So it's, that's the sort of the vibe. We're like, I'm not even I'm not even drinking my own alcohol anymore. Um, but yeah, it was, it was it was good, man. It was good. It was good. It's um, I think we're all glad to get the, the last twelve months behind us. Yeah. And hopefully, this next uh, sequence of time is a little bit more kind. Um, but yeah, really excited to be here. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It's very good to have you, Dan. No, oh, no. Yeah, we're looking forward to having you. On a few times, that I think well, it's fair to say from here on out. <laughs> yeah, I'm always there. The you know first me. Of many. This uh, this episode, our first episode in 2021, um, is looking at Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. I have to apologise. In the last <laughs> episode, I I, <laughs> I I kept saying Hopper <laughs> as soon as the recording I'm, stopped. <laughs> he realised his yeah. mistake. <laughs> so the last episode, I kept saying. Hopper instead of Hooper, and I'm still not confident that I'm not going to do the same <laughs> at some point throughout this episode. I just got to remind myself that it is the same as uh, Richard Dreyfus's character in Jaws, and not the same as Toby Hooper's um, star of Texas Chainsaw 2, <laughs> Dennis Hopper. <laughs> that's a very roundabout way, but if that works, man, if that's what it takes. Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got, got to do something that works for me, I feel. <laughs> As a northern man who regularly mispronounces words, I cannot hold you to account. I, I understand. <laughs> um, but so before we get going into our general discussion on the film, 
Josh, would you like to tell us what Poltergeist is all about? I would bloody love to, Andrew. So Poltergeist is about the Freeling family, who live in a suburban community called Cuesta Verde, which dad Stephen Freeling, played by Craig T. Nelson, helped to plan the building of as a real estate developer. One night when dad is passed out in front of the TV, the daughter Carol Ann, played by Heather O'Rourke, comes out of her room and begins conversing with a static television set. The following day, Mum, played by uh, Diane, played by Joe Beth Williams, looks after the children while Dad's at work. At night, the kids are struggling to sleep due to the scary things going on around them, whether it's a tree that the son Robbie, played by Oliver Robbins, thinks is talking to him, uh, or a scary clown that may or may not have murderous intentions. I don't like that clown. Uh, they join that. their parents in bed, falling asleep to the static on the television. Caroline is again drawn to the television set when suddenly a ghostly hand emanates from the screen, flies into the wall behind the bed and causes an earthquake to shake the house. At this point, Caroline turns to their parents and says, They're here. Bizarre events occur the following day, whether it's a drinking glass of milk spontaneously breaking, silverware bending or furniture moving off the ground on its own accord. Uh, this seems benign at first, and the mum and daughter have quite a bit of fun playing with it, uh, giggling and as, as the ghosts push them across the floor in the kitchen. Uh, although, oh, throughout the day, things begin to intensify. Uh, that night, the gnarled backyard tree comes alive and grabs Robbie through the closet, uh, through the bedroom window, sorry. When Stephen rescues Robbie, Caroline is sucked into a portal that appears in her closet. The Freelings then realise something supernatural has occurred when they hear her voice emanating from the television set that is tuned to an empty channel. Stephen turns to a group of parapsychologists from the UC Irvine for help. They set up in the Freeling family home and they begin their investigation into this poltergeist invasion. That's where I'll take us to for the time being. Mm. I, I, I shared a tagline that I liked of Continental Slide last week and I've <laughs> fa- I, I saw uh, a little line on the, on the back of the Blu-ray. The last line is... Um, Welcome to home, sweet haunted home. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. The end of a long day, I think that. Was That'll written. do. <laughs> um, so before we kind of like get into the nitty gritty, I think it's uh, worth like kind of going into our respective relationships with the film. Going into it, um, it's not one of like the kind of Amblin lot that I would I particularly grown up with. I only watched it for about the first time myself about. I want to say about six years ago. So it's not one that has this nostalgic attachment to me, but it's always one I you would hear about because of so many that it's one of these ones with a lot of the kind of like Hollywood curse myths around it and this this big authorship question that we will go into as to who really was the driving force behind it with Hooper and Spielberg. Um, um so yeah, it wasn't one I, I have I had a super amount of uh of of kind of like back experience with like watching it for this was only the second time I'd seen it but um uh, you were you similar Dan I think uh, when we were talking about this initially it similarly been a fair while for you since you've watched it yeah so it's an interesting one like you're talking about a back relationship and I'm guessing throughout the course of like this series you guys are going to have guests who have these really impassioned connections with the various films like you guys have impassioned connections with various um 
films in the Amblin canon, and it's interesting to come on and talk to you to talk to you guys about Poltergeist because I literally have no impassion connection to it as a, as a, as a, as a mm. movie, which, no, which I think is really interesting because yeah. it's not one I've ever like yeah. considered before in that way. So I maybe saw it when I was sixteen, so over ten years ago, well over ten years ago now, I maybe saw it for the first time, and I thought that's kind of a a fun genre movie. There's some really iconic imagery in it, like you said, Andy, like you alluded to. There's this authorship question around it that is, you know, I was aware, a well, well aware of at that juncture already. And so those things kind of made it like in a sort of a in the moment sort of experiential way. It made it quite, you know, I responded to it to a reasonable degree, but I never I didn't leave it or walk away from it thinking I've just seen a great genre movie or at that age, particularly as well. You know, I, I was starting to maybe get into slightly harder films too. you know, those, you know, you're of the same period mm. or slightly before your Exorcist, your Omens, your films like that. And this feels quite soft. It feels like quite a gentle film, mostly in comparison to those. So I, I just wonder if I overlooked it a little bit. And so I kind of thought that's a better than average genre movie with a couple of really strong images in it. And then just this time, a lot more stuff popped to me over 10 years later and with a lot more experience of reading films more so than anything else. But coming into it, when you set the challenge or when you extended the invite to come on and chat about Col- Poltergeist, I have very little expectation of sticking it on. I expected to see a reasonably well-crafted run-of-the-mill horror movie that's most interesting components were behind the camera rather than what's projected on the screen and mm. i guess we'll get to that later but i think i was wrong but yeah no strong connections no strong title to this one it was just kind of um a film i'd seen a film i find mo- moderately enjoyable and, and sort of moved on from so i kind of think another roundabout way that's me saying yeah andy we were very much this can be a cold uh, impersonal uh, emotionless autopsy of the film. <laughs> yeah yeah let's dissect it no but it is interesting to look at something that yeah because like, like like i said we, you alluded to the start of it all of us are now way older uh we, we've been through certain like academic training around the reading of films our, our, our awareness of politics and american politics is probably expanded and like if you transplant that 16 year old view of this film that 16 year old dan's view of that film and he was naive and and didn't really know that stuff to now not that i'm any expert on these things but it reads as a very different movie which i think is a fascinating thing to come on and chat to you guys about Uh, this is your first time this was for some reason it's been a film that i've perpetually managed to avoid seeing in its entirety i've seen it i've seen i think i've tried to watch it several times over the years and for whatever reason have not made it beyond 20 minutes not through any fault of the film's own i must add through whatever nonsense i was you know up to at the time um, but yeah, I'm a, obviously I'm a big Spielberg fan, hence this podcast existing. I'm a big Toby Hooper fan. A Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think, is one of my favourite films on balance. Mm. Um, I don't know what that says about me, really. But it, it, it's strange <laughs> that I haven't seen this film before. So I was I was very, very excited to check it, to be given a reason and an excuse to finally check it out in its entirety. And uh, yeah, I think you're right, Dan. I think having, knowing the political landscape of, late 20th century America a bit better and knowing where these two filmmakers were in their respective careers really helps with a reading of this even though it's not I don't think what's on screen is always the most interesting thing but there is always something interesting going on bubbling away beneath the surface or like you say behind the scenes so there's a lot to discuss when I was watching this film I was thinking oh yes I'm kind of excited to get into this one with those guys (laughs) yeah so let's talk about Toby Hooper initially then going into it because as you've mentioned there before, he is the director probably most famous for uh, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I, I do agree, like, is still one of the most, like, grotesquely yeah. horrifying <laughs> movies ever made. There's just such a tangible grip to that film that just is, like, still... And when you watch other films in Hooper's filmography, like, nothing ever quite 
feels the same. Not it's to the same like degree. Never quite that. I think you, you've <laughs> yeah. read the, um, the te- uh, Chainsaw Confidential, Gunnar Hansen's yeah. uh, making of the film. And yeah, he talks a lot about how people essentially lost their minds towards the end of the shoot in the baking Texas heat um, without much money, uh, without an awful lot of health and safety regulations on set. People went a little bit crazy. And I think more than any film that exists that I've ever seen otherwise, Texas Chainsaw Massacre really captures the fit. It's palpably insane. You watch the film and it feels genuinely unhinged and genuinely terrifying in a way that, like you say, even his follow-up films don't. Yeah. Because he, he only made two films in between that and coming on to Poltergeist. He had Eaten Alive in 1977, which is just a real trashy, <laughs> uh, big croc movie. But not that kind of forgets about having a big croc in it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he made fu- The Fun House in 1981, which feels like the sort of film that um, makes a bit more sense as to how he then got offered poltergeist by spielberg because the fun house is his first studio horror movie and it has a similar kind of uh i want to say that the atmosphere of it isn't that far from poltergeist i would say it's because it's got this a lot of the kind of practical elements going into the horror of it as well and also this kind of slight uh winking uh winking nature to it and that it's kind of having a lot of fun playing with um messing with its characters yeah. effectively. And in many places, it, it tends to eschew the more overt slasher tropes that are going on at the time. It makes quite a point of, of pointing to Universal monster movies and Haunted House movies as being its lineage in terms of horror. Um, so yeah, it, I think it does make sense mm-hmm. leading up to this. And I think Eaten Alive as well is notable because that's him operating on a soundstage as opposed to in the, the thick of it in, in the Texas desert. So that shows him playing with the elements, yeah. being in complete control of the elements and being able to do whatever he wants on screen, which I think is something that feeds into this film by way of the Funhouse. Yeah, and just before Funhouse as well, he did make the Salem's Lot miniseries for TV, which isn't something I've seen, but I think you've seen that, Dan, haven't you? Yeah, I, I saw that a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, it's based on a Stephen King book um, about a vampire. Stephen King's probably one of Stephen King's definitive books. It's about vampires in a small town called Jerusalem's Lot, or shortened as they call it in the novel Salem's Lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Eaten Alive or The Fun House. Um, they're, they're, not, they're not works I'm familiar with. In fact, when we kind of look back through this, I was saying to you guys before the pre-record, uh, for, a, for a director whose name we all know, and that chiefly mm. is Texas Chainsaw, Toby Hooper hasn't actually made that much shit that people are... That has crossed, <laughs> that has crossed into the zeitgeist. Um, but Salem's Lot is sort of my second reference point for him. Yeah. And again, I guess we'll get to that when we get to Poltergeist. Is Salem's Lot as good as and as complex as King's book? No, probably not. Is it a really credible adaptation of a complex re- and very bulky and fulsome read? It is, and there are some super pointed images in Salem's Lot. His... His mastery of the image, especially the image as pertains to small town America, America and things looking in through houses and things operating in these very domestic spaces, they're very prevalent in that picture. And he actually really thrives in that that area and in that element. Um, so to me, having not seen the other two pictures, that speaks to me a lot in regards to what yeah. we're about to go and talk about. Um, and I think it's quite. It was quite. I, I mean, I don't know too much about films. Like, I'd contextualize it in terms of how it operated off the screen. But I think it's quite revered and it's quite a celebrated adaptation mm, in the I think same so. way that that um, that later adaptation of Stephen King's It that came out in nineteen ninety. I think it holds a, a similar level of acclaim and struck a similar age group in America the same way. Especially like the that frightening sort of pallid, um, you know, sort of that Nosferatu esque vampire that sort of runs amok in that story. 
there's images of him looking in windows and stuff that I really think may have impacted and affected a, a generation of kids who would have watched it on TV then. So I think his strengths are all there and that, and it, and there's a lot of you know sort of similar DNA with Poltergeist. So to me, that felt like oh right, we went from Texas Chainsaw to that to Poltergeist. That's the sort of the track that I'm running with, and that makes sense to me. Yeah, I'm just looking it up, and I had no idea that the cast was led by David Soul and James Mason. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should have watched this instead of Eaten Alive in the Funhouse. I've wasted it. I missed a trick there. It's always waiting. It's, it's, good, it's, good. it's And also Fred Willard, the, the late, great Fred yeah. Willard. He's in it as well. Third build, apparently. It's it's a really solid crack at a really tough book. You know, it does it, does it better than a lot of King adaptations do. And uh, Hooper doesn't phone it in and seems to connect with the material. So whatever you say about Toby Hooper, at that point he was still... He was still trying. Yeah. Well, I... I don't know an awful lot. I've seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but that's as late. So the, the mid-80s is as late as I've gone with Hooper. So, I mean, that's a sequel that is so far... I mean, I know we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves now, but that sequel is so far away from what the original was that I, you, you, it commits to a thing, and you cannot, I don't think, accuse him of phoning that in either. So certainly everything that I've seen mm. of his... They vary in quality, but he, he seems to always yeah. you know, bring his all when he's behind the camera. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm trying to think of like even later in his life. I think a lot of it was either just like directed DVD stuff, or he just I, he has a producer credit on pretty much any Texas Chainsaw thing post the remake. Like, what was his last? Early noughties, I think. What was his last major credit as a director, Andy? I didn't even check that up. That's how poorly this research was conducted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> last mate. There was a film called Gin in uh, 2013. But la- la- last big one. What was the last <laughs> Toby Hooper movie? Last that... big. I think the Toolbox Murders has its defenders, which was in what two thousand four, and that was. Well, his... at least I knew that title. Not something I remember. I I, I really recall no. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything seems quite like small budget for a lot of the time in the in the noughties and the nineties. Yeah. But nothing really cut through, okay. I guess, is the question. Because I mean, no. Toolbox Murders, I remember as a title around the sort of the time that. Torture porn was a really, you know, the torture porn boom of about 2003 yeah, to yeah. 2008, and I think he was playing in that space. I never saw it, but um, I can remember that being a thing or a thing I read about somewhere. Whereas it's just so many of those other films, man. You look at even from the 80s and the 90s, you're looking at that filmography and you're like, what the? What was that? I mean, I just, I just have no conscious. I mean, not that I'm an encyclopedia on Toby Hooper or the 90s in general, but you would expect someone in this chat, if he had made something, to really permeate and fire in the the grey matter but uh, nothing there was no recollection of virtually and, for, and also for a director who's like I feel like gets referenced in that sort of 70s that Wunderkind yeah. sort of um, crew that came up to the 70s at least sometimes it just no nothing it, it did feel really like wow that was it okay but I think a lot of those a lot of his horror contemporaries from the 70s and 80s like Argento and Romero they have had similar they had similar later stages of their career where they have these major smashes in the 70s and 80s and then the 90s and noughties work and 2010's work, if they've made it that far, just seems to be a, a big shrug, almost as if the industry's, you know, elbowed them. Yeah, I think it bit. was totally a trajectory for those guys. But even if you look at, say, and I'm going for the big, the bit, the big cheese here, John Carpenter. Yeah, John Carpenter was stead- one, yeah. steadily making, but he was steadily making like high-profile films through the early noughties, um, like Ghost of Mars and stuff like that. Not good movies, but. They were, they, <laughs> but they, they were big movies that you know about and that you're aware of and that you're cognizant of. Whereas just Toby Hooper is just like, just seems to have gone on this, you know, sort of 
I mean, even like Eaten Alive, that's a film about a crocodile that Andy told me about. And sadly, I didn't get a chance to talk about it or see it, sorry. But like, that's a movie about a crocodile that Andy told me about. And I didn't even know it existed. And I like to think that I'm pretty hot on, especially yeah, no, crocodiles. Yeah, no, that's why I thought you might have. <laughs> um, just looking up, he also made a film called Crocodile that was directed to TV in the late 90s. About, again, about a giant crocodile. So he clearly had it in his system. <laughs> But uh, yeah, considering at this point going into Poltergeist, I would say that he's still very much riding the coattails of making one of the most impressionable and uh, influential horror movies of all time in Texas Chainsaw. And that that one particularly does seem to be the reason why Spielberg was keen to let him take the reins, shall we say. Um, I, I did see little air quotes there. <laughs> <laughs> around the reins. To be discussed. Um, yeah, because uh, we should say with Poltergeist, uh, Spielberg's involvement is he's a producer on it, but it's also one of only a handful of times that he uh, has a writing credit on one of the projects that he's involved in. And this is a film very much, uh, he's spoken about how it stems a lot from his own kind of like childhood imagination running wild with certain images that he grew up with be it the clown or the gnarled tree outside of his bedroom and that again these kind of claims of from spielberg like saying how much um he put of his own experiences into the script is kind of what kicked off this whole uh who directed the film debate right around the time when it first came out I mean, this this is literally a kind of conversation that started on that summer of release in 1982 when um, I think it was an article in uh, the LA Times by Dale Pollock uh, called Poltergeist. Just whose film is it? <laughs> <laughs> Investigated like the controversy surrounding it because at the time when he was interviewing everyone on the set, he was getting a lot of differing tales from cast and crew as to who was really kind of calling the shots uh, and, and one of like the kind of like main uh, voices in that was Frank Marshall as well who of course is one of the guys who founded Amblin with Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy and is on is credited on so many of these movies and um, he he described as Toby was a director and was on the set every day but Stephen was also there most of the days um, doing designs on every storyboard and also helping with a lot of shot setups. And that whole thing actually led to the Directors Guild of America instigating this whole uh, investigation as to whether or not the credit was correct, uh, particularly supported by a lot of people amongst the cast who kind of backed up Marshall's um, uh assessment of the the relationship on the film and uh even spielberg himself kind of like led uh put a bit too much fuel on the fire where he was very much saying about how toby was quite a withdrawn director he wasn't someone who would like if someone came up with a problem apparently toby didn't have a particularly loud voice to be like let's do this stephen would often and Spielberg has said about how he would suggest something and then Toby would nod and what have you. And this all, this all builds into it. And uh, to a point where Spielberg had to like 
kind of formally apologize in a whole like page ad in Variety in the in that same summer after the article came out, just basically saying people have misconstrued our relationship, uh, our unique hybrid relationship in, that we had on this film. But it's it's still something that even to this day, people are still like no one really has a clear answer for it and like even um film critics as big as like david thompson has said like fundamentally it is pretty well agreed now that poltergeist deserves to be read as a spielberg work and uh i don't think it's uh ever as <laughs> it, it's as quite clear cut as i that. don't <laughs> <laughs> sit, sit down david all due respect um, yeah. I think the the wording of that Spielberg quote is quite telling. Um, T- Toby is not yeah. just a strong Toby is just not a strong presence on a movie set. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump up and say what we could do. Toby would nod in agreement, and that became the process of collaboration. Which I, I imagine Toby Hooper have made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, actually, he made Eggshells before that, which was kind of I think lost for all intents. That's purposes. a trippy movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's made four four films of incrementally increasing scale, but still nothing on the on the level that Spielberg was working on. This is easily his biggest film, and Spielberg is is comfortable in this environment. And it must be hard to have a, someone so shit hot as Spielberg on set every single day, keeping an eye on his idea. You, you I can, I can imagine mm-hmm. how that might um, throw you off a little bit as as a director in Toby Hooper's position and it, 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 it i don't yeah. know the, the wording of if, he, if the answer wasn't there immediately i would jump in and say this this and this and this it, it it doesn't sound like hooper was given an awful lot of space to organically offer those answers himself but that's that's by the by i think the, the 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 greater conversation is in how you define who a director of a film is on what grounds do you say this is more of so-and-so's yeah. film or so-and-so's film so i don't know how does David Thompson qualify that statement. Uh, this is very much just the like kind of offhanded quote I found right. in a, a chapter in a book I, I was reading up on this. Warren Buckland's directed by Steven Spielberg has this whole chapter on uh, the authorship of it, and he like just uses it as an example to um, back up this kind of to this day this kind of back and forth contentious uh, opinion of yeah. who directed it. I think I think the key question, like to me, just thinking about it yesterday, because I knew this was going to come up, and I was I was thinking about what that, what how how to answer it, or how to think about it, or where 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 I was on that fence. And I think Josh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. There's a difference between a DGA credit and the DGA arbitrating that you have directed a movie versus actually being the author of a movie. And I was watching the credits mm. credits roll on Poltergeist. Spielberg has a story credit. Spielberg has a screenplay credit, which like the screenplay credit is very rare. Spielberg is a producer. He's flanked by Marshall and Kennedy. He, it's 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 edited by Michael Kahn. It's uh, it's shot shot by Leonetti, who I think shot a bunch of Spielberg films as well. I believe you guys can correct me on that. And I'm sat there thinking, how could this not be in that more authorship and uh, and uh, pure sense? How could this not be a Steven Spielberg movie? I mean, you go to the first shot of this movie, or the first few shots of this movie, and there's a guy whizzing down one of those little sort of um, suburban uh, new builds in, in California, wherever this baby's set. And there's like kids playing with cars, and the cars flank them. And there's a really like 
light-hearted Jerry Goldsmith score popping off in the background, and I'm like, this is a, yeah. this is a Steven Spielberg movie. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> it looks identical to E.T. It, it does. Well. Like, and Spielberg movie. The crucial difference is the guy on the bike is carrying a 12-pack of beers and is shortly knocked off his bike <laughs> by the kids and their remote control cars. So I think it's, it's Spielberg with Toby Hooper driving his RC car into it and knocking it off at every turn. Maybe, but I just thought watching it, this is... Uh, just those credits, just the even the start of the yeah. film, the commencement of the film, the way Goldsmith's yeah. score sounds. So Goldsmith's a very malleable, I think. Like obviously, certain string motifs come through a lot through Goldsmith's work. But he's a very malleable composer. I feel if you listen to The Omen versus you listen to Gremlins, you're getting a completely different sound. And this feels like Jerry Goldsmith doing Steven Spielberg. This feels like him in a Spielberg's world, operating not just in a Joe Dante way, like he does in Gremlins, where Spielberg very much does feel like a producer in that world. I think this feels like this score feels like it could sit in any Spielberg film of that period. It could sit in, um, a, you know, uh, in ET. I mean, obviously the John Williams score for ET is iconic, so it's hard to situate it there. But the way the string plays, the way it bops and it rises and it plays, it's never too somber or too ominous. That sort of the sound of small town Americana that's captured in that first sequence where the RC cars and the guys driving through the new builds, it feels like something out of any of those Spielberg movies of that era. And it was just those little inflections that made me think that's really how you direct a movie is when you stamp your authorship and all the craftspeople around you. You can be there every day on set and you can say cut and you can say action, which I read a lot of cast members said. Toby Hooper was there, man. He did it. But really how you direct a movie, a director is a collaborative, a movie is a collaborative process. It's about stamping your authorship on those various other component contributors. And they're all Spielberg boys. They're all Spielberg men lined up behind him. And I'm not like, that sounds like I'm turning it into a militant, um, <laughs> uh, a, a hostile It take, is a Spielberg. A hostile take, but it just feels like in an academic or in a critical reading of the movie, it is a Spielberg film, whereas in a more traditional DGA-run arbitration of who actually directed this film, sure, Toby Hooper probably did direct the movie, but it's guess it's about what is authorship. Is it the guy behind the camera? Is it the guy at Video Village saying action cut, saying, yeah, move on to the next one? Or is it the guy systematically lining everyone up around saying, this is how we do that, this is how we do that, this is how we do that, and peeking over the director's shoulder and giving him a little thumbs up when, the, when, when, the, when he calls cut? And it just feels like Spielberg is so present in this, like, it is. I think it's impossible to not kind of feel like you're watching Steven Spielberg film when you're watching this movie. Uh, yeah, and I think I think that kind of comes from like the fact that the guy wrote the script, so of yeah. course there's going to be so much of his DNA coming through it. And I, I think it, what it really then has to come down to is how much of that actual the composition and the actual feeling in the way that either like the camera's moving or the kind of techniques that sort of use how much you're actually then determining on a very kind of like almost like quite a cold pragmatic level just whose fingerprints can you see on it which is something that in this book that i did read ahead of it did kind of go into in quite a mathematical way um where they they kind of broke down they compared it compared the film to other spielberg and hooper movies and kind of broke down statistically uh, whose work it kind of resembled more. And that coming fr- from it in that kind of like quite detached way, I think will, and it, it for him, it kind of got to a finding where um, he did determine that it felt it was statistically more of a Hooper movie by like <laughs> uh, maybe about five or 10%. <laughs> but um I think pers- personally for me, it's like more of a more of a case of like yes, you can kind of have that more pragmatic approach to 
determining it but i think there's also you you do just kind of have to vibe it yeah a lot of the yeah. time as well and a lot of that vibe is of course going to be quite spielbergian because of how much of he says he's putting in put so much of himself and his experience into this script yeah and at this point, like Amblin is like a, it is a corporation. Well, I don't know if it is like Amblin is, but Spielberg is a brand. Is a, it's a brand. Just mm-hmm. like Coca Cola is a brand. Just like Amazon's a brand. You know, you have a certain level of a certain expectation of what these things are going to provide. And you know, Spielberg is an amazing artist, and so many of the people who surround himself, those crass people, are like absolutely top of their game, Hollywood legends. But there is also like a there's a there's a commercial impetus and. This Spielberg brand works in the marketplace, and so I do think there's probably a degree of wanting to hold on to that. That maybe, you know, is obviously going to play devil's advocate. That is going to infect your read of any Spielberg or Amblin production. Is even if you look at something like Transformers, which isn't actually an Amblin film, but as I learned in my research for joining you guys, <laughs> but it's a dream, but it's a DreamWorks movie, and. Yeah. You look at that, and that's directed by Michael Bay, and Michael Bay is an auteur, and he has his own voice. Don't you start still this. That Spielbergness, yeah, but this, <laughs> this Spielbergness is so present in that film, maybe in the same way that it's present in this film. There is a brand, uh, a branding issue there as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I brought, I brought Michael Bay in. No, no, I, I, it was a matter of time. <laughs> I, I'm all down. <laughs> Drink. Oh, I've finished my wine. Um, no, I, th- I think I, 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 I fully understand. Like, I, I, I get that it, it it sort of follows a Spielberg. I think it definitely fits into the, the Amblin-esque visual language that's been established by, the, or is being established at this point and is going to be compounded with E.T., which which is our next film and which comes out the same year. But I yeah. think for me, the most fruitful way of looking at the authorship question is is looking at this film in the context of both of their filmographies. And I definitely think that having done a little bit of Hooper watching and, and, and watching how he evolved through Eaten Alive and through The Fun House, you can kind of see these thematic interests of his weaving through those. And they do come through into this, even though it does have the chassis of a Spielberg production. I do think that there is something Hooperish that is built on top of that is trying to break through and, you know, pull the Spielberg concerns through the cupboard into the ghost dimension. Um, yeah, maybe that's, I like that. maybe it's like, a, I don't know. What, what, what do we, what do we reckon that? So you were talking about the, the, the Thompson, Andy, like you guys have probably read a little bit more on this yeah. than I have in preparation. Like I, I, I went through it again and did sort of a cursory review just to see where we're at. Do is that the sort of the latest and most definitive up to date consensus on where this is? I mean, obviously you've got first person accounts which seem very varied based on what I read in terms of cast and crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah, different things. There's no consistency there. But do we think that's like the definitive position? Uh, yeah, I think the last thing um that I kind of read about it was um it was um. A publicist on the film um, at the time following um, Toby Hooper's death in 2017, I want to say. Um, he kind of shared what his experience was from looking at it and uh, from being a, the publicist on the set and being there. And I think this is kind of what's being taken as the um, final word of it now. He said, uh, Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby was deeply involved in pre-production and everything. But Stephen is a guy who will come in and call shots whenever he's there. So when you're, and this kind of echoes what you were saying, Josh, as well. When you're on your first, like one of your first studio movies, and you're hired by Steven Spielberg, who's enthusiastically involved in the movie that you're making, are you going to be? Are you going to be like, stop that, don't say that, leave me be? You are just going to be like, yeah, okay, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess, like. 
we all do different things and we all but if, if whenever you're producing anything i think in a professional environment there just are people who outrank you and it's like your creative this intuition can take you one way but if that guy comes down the stairs and says no i want it the other way he's the one with the money and the one who this is all being answered to yeah. so you don't really have a choice i guess yeah. <laughs> i gonna say when the boss says go you gotta go <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's 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 corporate america baby <laughs> That is, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's something this film very much uh, engages with. Um, yeah, I, I, just to kind of like be the final final point on this, a lot of things with Poltergeist, both this kind of authorship question and the kind of curse of Poltergeist, which in, where like a, quite a few people involved in the films um, died around the time of productions or in the, in the whole trilogy of Poltergeist movies, either died around production or shortly after. Um, there's always this niggling sense to me that it is like kind of go back to the sort of um, man who shot Liberty Vance idea of like when the legend is bigger than the fact, print the legend. So of course, always are gonna people always gonna go for the stranger side of it or the like the debate side of it, even if like technically that there's not really much actually there and people involved in it are just saying. Mm. definitively no he made it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh it, it, it it's always gonna make things interesting sort of jump jumping off from something i mentioned earlier in terms of the thematic concerns that hooper brings to this i think watching his films in preparation for this i was aware that poltergeist is about a family facing uh, a poltergeist invasion or a haunting or whatever i guess not a haunting technically um so i was watching his earlier films and focusing on how Hooper deals with family, trying to sort of glean what Hooper's take on that might be and what it could bring to this film. And I think Hooper does have a very interesting and very different relationship to Spielberg with family. Well, whereas Spielberg, um, throughout his entire career, but I guess particularly at this point, he focuses on the, the broken suburban family unit and this supernatural mm. or, or paranormal or extraterrestrial thing that can come, come in and fill the gaps in that broken family and help it mend and heal and move on. Whereas I think Hooper's take is is is, is much more nihilistic and, and vastly different. He kind of, with a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he throws these suburban kids into the heartlands and makes them face off against a family that's been warped by 20th century struggles, so Vietnam and the end of flower power and, and, and Nixon and Watergate and all that stuff. And I think he makes people from the suburbs face up against the demons that America tries to ignore and push down deep inside itself. So... You know, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the the main portrayal of family is this inbred cannibalistic <laughs> uh, unit that's been left behind by the modern world and has been warped by that. Uh, the family, but they still they still gather around the dinner, the dinner and table, <laughs> their guests to eat. Uh, eaten alive, you've, you've got the family in eaten alive is weird. It's really almost expressionistic and unhinged. The, 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 I don't know what the dad character is doing, but he he's almost as psychopathic seeming as the actual killer in that film. So again, you've you've, <laughs> you've got this you've got a very very weird unhealthy family portrayal there. And then in the funhouse, on the one hand, you've got the parents of the protagonist who are very waspish, waspish and quite uncaring. And then, in, in in a less literal but more overt sense, you've got the the Carnies who are a sort of makeshift family. Um, uh, who are in a similar way to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? They are the kind of yeah. they, they they come together and they find strength in being cast out by society. And again, you've got these suburban kids going into their territory and being terrorized by these demons that polite society tries to ignore. 
And I think that you, a lot of that does feed into Poltergeist. I know you've got this the, the, the look and feel of a suburban family unit, but it's literally built on demons that the building company tried to ignore. Like one of the most telling quotes in, in that sense was from the end, where um, the house is 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 finally being destroyed and the dad rushes back from meeting his boss. Um, and uh, his boss is standing on, looking on a gog, and the dad says to him, you only moved the headstones, you didn't move the bodies, you only moved the headstones. So it's this idea of, of making... Just in case you <laughs> yeah, don't get that. <laughs> of making these superficial gestures to, to sort of dealing with one's past, but in actuality, just sweeping away the, the surface debris and moving on and just sort of compounding those demons deep into the dirt. And much like in Hooper's previous films, those demons do break through and destroy the suburban family units, ultimately. I think this film's got a slightly more optimistic endpoint than most of Hooper's films do have. Uh, I think unanimously their final yeah. shots are pretty grotesque, whether it's Marilyn Burns covered in blood screaming in the back of a truck, or uh, a wooden leg floating in a crocodile swamp and eaten alive, or... Uh, the sole survivor walking, bloodied and bedraggled, walking through a dilapidated funhouse at the end of the funhouse. Uh, this is a slightly more optimistic conclusion, but I think reading it in terms of family portrayals, you can really see Hooper's uh, directorial stamp come through. I mean, if not in a visual sense, at least in a thematic sense. Yeah. No, I, I'd agree with that reading, and particularly kind of going back to your point about how it's this kind of like the corruption of the suburban family and how much the 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 tv is used as the symbol for that corruption of the family as well because the tv is literally the the vessel that almost seems to beckon these spirits in because it's the main point of communication yeah. with this uh um malevolent force that ends up completely literally tearing down the house at the end and going back to the final shot, the final shot is literally the, the, the tongue-in-cheek kind of moment of them checking into a Holiday Inn after this whole horrible ordeal, and the first thing that the dad does when they get, he gets in the room is will the TV outside. That's a good gag. <laughs> in, a, in a strange yeah. sort of way, I actually, I, 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 I had an interesting reaction. So you're talking about, um, Josh, just jumping back into your point, and then Andy, you alluded to it there as well, is the final shot being... Um, a little bit more hopeful. I was considering that within the context of the rest of the film, and in considering it in the context of the early part of Reagan's America, where homelessness was so rife, mm. where trickle down economics was putting this massive impetus on families to 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 to, to move up the classes, basically, because uh, of, yeah. of the way that financial relief was structured, or that or his his financial paradigm was structured, and the way and the impetus that is placed on the importance of home in America and the possibility of home in America and what anyone will do for a home in America. Hence, they build an entire development on a graveyard. I actually read the ending. Sounds Jerry Smith's gold score again, which is very Spielbergian and light in that moment. I read it as quite, oh my God, the worst possible thing has happened to this family. They are now homeless in Reagan's America. They have, yeah. and that, fulcr mm. that fulcrum and that relief measure throughout the film, actually, which is the TV, because she can speak through the TV. She can, I mean, the TV never feels like it's that nefarious at all within the construct of the film. And within the paradigm of what I understand about Steven Spielberg, I was shocked that the TV would have any negative connotations because it feels like he would yeah. be a kid <laughs> who would have escaped into that in his, his home. So the fact that they were having to move into this holiday home, this holiday inn, sorry, and kick out the TV at the end, great gag as well. I agree with Andy. <laughs> but 
it does feel actually quite hopeless and like oh my god yeah and you know, he has no job his job's gone his yeah. security's gone um and it felt like actually in a strange sort of a way this feels like the worst possible scenario for a family in say 1981 or 1980 in reagan's america to be which is down with that have fallen down to that working bracket where all the wealth the trickle down wealth is being held at the top because obviously that's a flawed system it doesn't really work and it felt like without a home without hope without a job without a breadwinner this family has now relegated itself to the bottom to the very worst place you could you'd want to be. All their aspirations of being an upwardly mobile middle class family. Because I, I have to admit, you, some of the things you were saying about family in this movie were so smart. I didn't even really consider it within the context of Texas Chainsaw, which is it's it's it's, it's amazing to, to hear it. Because but really, what I focused in was just it was so interesting to hear about. It almost felt more like a corruption of um, a certain a certain spirit and type of person who I think is kind of embodied by Craig T. Nelson in this movie. So he's the breadwinner. He's the father who works as yeah. this real estate injury, this real estate business. So he's bought into this, this race for homes that is happening in Reagan's America that, you know, he's actively aiding the, whatever that is, that is causing homelessness on one end of the economic split and, you know, vast wealth on the other. Um, and I just think it's really fascinating. There's a great shot in the film and it really summed it up for me. And you guys probably clocked it too is where we kind of get an interaction between Craig T. Nelson and his wife for the first time. She sm- sat on the bed smoking a, uh, smoking, smoking a joint, yeah. and he's at the front reading a Ronald Reagan book, and the camera sort of tracks around and yeah. makes her smaller and him bigger in the shot as it goes, and it just feels like the breakdown of that 60s and 70s jeu de vivre that I'm sure like um, Hooper and Spielberg were, were big proponents of into this more Reagan mold, which was this pursuit of wealth, this greed that permeated society at that time that sort of um that race within the middle class to reach the next bracket yeah and i thought that was so fascinating man and so well done um and even later when yeah. she says to him when these spectral occurrences start happening for the first time she's like please roll back your mind 10 years be yeah. fun and be open-minded for a change and don't be the yeah. shut off estate exactly. agent who's, and i thought that was so amazing but i think the family stuff's so great but i think that ties back into why i actually think that last shot in the film might not be so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Hey man, no, I that, that that's fine. I, I like that actually. I like that reading an awful lot. And I think looking at these characters on a, on a character level, uh, looking at the way they react to their daughter's disappearance, the, the dad immediately is like a broken man. He's day drinking, he's smoking, he's talking in this very monotone voice. Whereas the mum is the one who is trying to be proactive and trying to find solutions and trying to keep the family together. He even says we're trying to hold ourselves together as a family. So I think that might that might sort of point to the direction they're going to end up in after this film has ended. So yeah, maybe you're right Dan. Maybe it's not, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's a very pessimistic conclusion. But which might, might feel more Hooperish, which is another interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, juxtaposition. Most definitely. Like, do you read it as a Spielberg film? In which case it's totally, I think it's completely natural to read it the way that you just articulated, Josh. If you read it as a Hooper film, maybe you read it the other way. And maybe there is no real author here and it doesn't really know what it wants to be or doesn't say. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating halfway house. And visually, it's a halfway house. You don't have that economic elegance of Spielberg, but you don't have that weird gonzo scuzz of Hooper. It's kind of something in between mm. the two of it. Aside from the body horror bits, of which there is one particularly horrendous example yeah. where the guy tears his face off. In the in the bathroom, I mirror. couldn't believe this mirror. this movie got a PG and had that in it. Yeah, I, was I, I kind of shocked. Wild. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, yeah, visual and, and I think narratively as well, it is somewhere in between. I can you can you can very much see agree. both of them bringing, and you can feel that tension between the two of them trying to bring to bear what they see the film as being, and I think it's all the more fascinating for that. Uh, and I think kind of coming coming off of 
your your two's readings there um you also have this kind of element of um this the freelings are just being used as the the punching bag for like the sins of both um reagan the the kind of like reagan era nuclear family but also just for uh, like colonial sins as well for like impeding on uh native land and because i think it, it is suggested that this uh cemetery that it was built on top of was also a native american burial ground at one point as well and that kind of builds into this like real real theme within it for me that that is this family is just being used as the <laughs> the guys who are just going to take every kind of hit for every sin of uh, modern America, basically. And they they are so beaten yeah. and downtrodden at the end. And like that, that again is even kind of enforced in um, the way that the TV is used as the um, signifier for every kind of uh, really es- point of escalation in terms of the activities of the poltergeist in the house itself, because each a uh, moment of uh, quite significant spectral go- goings on is kind of preceded by the TV playing out and ending broadcast with the national anthem going on, and as if this the symbol of the free American land is the thing that's about to kick off every uh, their their greatest horror as well, and having their family torn away from them and having to really test their own limits as to how far they're willing to go to rebuild that family and um yeah and like the film is ready to put them through it I just, I th- in terms of like I, again it just goes it just goes back to that viewing this film as a 16 year old and viewing this film you know all these years later and as soon as I, I sat up in my seat, as soon as the credits started rolling and the Star Spangled Banner started playing, and I was like, <laughs> I have no recollection of this. And you just know from that moment on, this yeah. film is going to make a, a declarative political statement. Yes. It just is. Absolutely. And I had no awareness or sense of what that might mean, or, or I wasn't you know, really capable of interpreting that then, because that had completely been erased from my memory. And as soon as that played, and you have those iconic images, I think there's like images from Iwo Jima and stuff like that in there, yeah. or whatever... Yeah. Um, I was like, wow, this film's going yeah. to... I was 100% certain at that point, this film's going to say something and it's going to say it real loud. And it did not disappoint, um, which is just something that completely missed me the first time I saw this uh, way back when. Yeah, and uh, just to make a point that's incredibly wanky and completely incidental, but I think it's quite interesting. Uh, Toby Hooper's name is, is the first name that appears on the film and it's over a blank screen with the national anthem playing in the background. The first time we see Steven Spielberg's name is when we cut to a, an establishing shot of the... The, the suburbs with the gentle Jerry Goldsmith's going back. Yeah. I think that even though, you know, that, that is a sort of, that's a very sort of wanky film student thing to say. It is quite interesting. Let me have it. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite telling as to what they both bring to this film. I think. Uh, I, I do think it's quite like, cause going back to this, these stories that were coming out of um, what the kind of relationship was like during production. Apparently a lot of the post-production work as well, wasn't really overseen by uh, Hooper. It was a lot of it was, um, Spielberg and Marshall in the editing room, which I think is why you kind of do get this Jerry Goldsmith score, which feels closer to something um, more in keeping with Spielberg's um, spirit. But it also made me kind of think about the kind of elements of um, visual effects that are going on in it as well, because I, I I feel you can kind of see that in terms of like what would have been done in camera 
on on set and what would have been done afterwards by ILM in post post production because I think all the kind of like practical and camera stuff has that kind of gonzo um tech textured kind of horribleness to it that feels really really hooper from like the aforementioned face um clawing to this this uh steak that crawls along the kitchen countertop and then like starts to fester and there's <sighs> and a piece of fried chicken as well but then and then you have also have this kind of like gooey and <laughs> weird beast thing that pops out as well during <laughs> one one point as well but then on the flip side of that you have like the first proper encounter with the spirits in the house is so evocative of uh, something like Close Encounters by just having these like quite um, calm uh, spectrals of light just going down the staircase and moving very slowly and it's that as an element that would have been done later by ILM I feel like you can still feel that tension in the the visual identity of the, of the film in, as well just, and the kind of approaches to moments of horror and awe I think still have that there. It is very Kingdom of the Crystal Ghouls. It really is, though. I, I completely agree. That's such a good point as well. I hadn't even thought about how the, there's a split between what's done in camera and those later um, sophisticated digital or um, post effects that are added in. There's a complete... Uh, wow, the, you're so right there. If you look at that, especially that scene that we were talking about, the one that I just boggles my mind, this movie got a PG, where the... Uh, the uh, the scientist goes into the to, to the kitchen to make oh. a steak. His steak proceeds to mutate and become overrun with maggots. And then he goes into the the, the, the the kitchen and he just starts ripping his face apart. And if you split that with even what's meant to be scary later, so at the end when um, the mother runs up the stairs and she's confronted by this sort of canine apparition, which I assume is like the embodiment of what this thing really is, um, at the door that's guarding mm. the door maybe it's like sort of a what do you call the dog the three-headed dog Cerberus maybe it's like a Cerberus thing blocking the door I don't know mm. but that feels so Spielbergian like it's spectacular and it's eerie and it's ethereal but it's also like not that viscerally frightening and then you know even the steak that crawls around the counter you're just like get that the fuck away from me <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere I don't want to see anything like that and I think that that's, a, that's such an interesting point and again I think it maybe yeah. feeds into the idea that there is no true author here yeah yeah I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's a, a conclusion that's emerging. Yeah. <laughs> the conclusion, Hooper or Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, right, that that's kinda like the entire conversation over the last thirty five years, right? It's yeah. just it's a shrug. Yeah. <laughs> We've got it, boys. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> um and also the the um I I agree with you, Dan. I think that it's not it's not particularly scary on, on a primal level, but it, it is thrilling. I was quite impressed with that. Yeah, that, particularly that bit, the, 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 in the first climax before the, before the high-pitched voice lady says, this house is clear. There's that bit when um, the mum's going into the cupboard and they've got a tied up on, on rope. And pretty much it's just two, two different shots, one in the bedroom, one in the living room downstairs, two fixed perspectives and flashing lights. That's essentially all it really is, but it's so thrilling and it sets up the stakes so well. Yeah, and and yeah, that scene in particular is one that I always think of um, in comparing it to the remake that happened in twenty fifteen. Forgot that happened because the, the remake does have it does visualize the other side and that mm. kind of journey in between looking, and it 
it's just it's never yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just kind of having this like you say these two fixed perspectives and the kind of like really um taut stakes of it holding on this rope as well <laughs> the question i was going to ask is and it just feels like so i felt like the two things i i, I went in looking for were that more sort of textual or that sort of um political analysis and then I wanted to just look at it as like a think about it as like a straight up genre movie and so see how it functions. And I, I love the political stuff and I thought that was so so interestingly woven in. And like you guys have brought up so many things I didn't even think about that enrich it even more. But how did you guys felt it functioned as a horror movie? Because I was much more mixed on that, on its actual performance as a dramatic piece of genre work. I felt that it sets its stakes quite well. The first act is it builds does the does the Spielbergian building the dread slowly thing does a couple of moments of wonder and awe a la Jurassic Park we are kind of like oh there's magic chairs there's funky chairs and we're all having a good time as the chairs rocked across the kitchen and I just thought when it cut to the second act until um, the the occult specialist comes into the frame I felt it just grind to this halt and yes there are those little precise moments of really impressive horrors a la again we're going back to the guy ripping his face off that are really striking but it just seemed at the second act break through to about as we were pushing towards the third that the film becomes much more experiential and that the characters aren't really driving it anymore and they just kind of sit around and wait for stuff to happen and i guess yeah. the, the the academics and the scientists are in the house with them at the same time uncover stuff but it feels like dramatically it becomes a little inert in its second act and i was just slightly take until she sits down and the uh, the occultist kind of gives that really impassioned eerie speech which is like there is something in there with her and it is it is terrible and it is the beast mm. and unless you are willing to go with me now and push everything else to the side your daughter's not coming back i just felt like it put its main characters on the shelf for an awful long time and made yeah. the second act yeah. feel a little dull i'd agree i'd agree i think from the daughter getting sucked into the closet pretty much until i've looked her name up now that the high-pitched voice lady tagina barons the character zelda mm. rubenstein uh, until she come between the daughter going away and her coming in i think there is very much a lull like you say dan it is people sitting around having pop theology conversations and it, no one seems to i don't think hooper's particularly interested in directing those scenes or particularly there's not much vim or verve to them um but then you know once she does come in at the end <laughs> it, it it sort of skipped back into gear but still i don't i, I wouldn't say yeah I, I still wouldn't say that it was a particularly effective horror film i just think it, it, it's a good it, the final act works as a good um i don't know what you call it, like an intense an intense adventure movie maybe I'd agree because it kind of has that fake out of a ending where everything does feel like it's all been resolved in classic horror movie trope. No, yeah, it's yeah, not. yeah. It's still, yeah. <laughs> still one last big, big set piece to occur. The uh, it takes a long time for the stakes to get put in place as well. Like in the second act, there's a mystery almost un- unfurling, but like you've got these scientists in the house saying, "Don't." Basically, their 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 essential message is: this is a bit spooky. It's all going to be grand, lads. We'll get it right. And then it's not till Zelda Rubenstein comes in and says, oh no, by the way, guys, there's something terrible in there and you guys are going to have to be far more proactive about resolving this than you already have, than you already are. And it just feels like a long time to get to the point where everyone gets a kick up the arse and actually has to start doing shit and fighting against like a, a really like malevolent antagonist. Up to that point, it just feels very, oh, there's a, yeah, no, she's mm. in this roof or she's in the house, she's in the tea. It's going to be Look, it's a wee bit creepy. It'll be the guy's ripping his head face off. It'll be fine. This is all gonna be grand. 
it just takes a long time to get to that point where the picture goes boom and really puts a fist through it and goes, yeah, now we're now we're yeah. cooking with gas. I thought that was interesting too. I was just going to say about how much it struck me, like it's second time watching it and I was sat there going throughout all of it, I was like, I can't remember if anyone dies in this movie. And that, that was something that struck me was that there are no fatalities. There is one fatality at the start and it's the bird. <laughs> <laughs> it's the pet bird. <laughs> and I had to laugh because we were sat there and it, and whilst they were doing the burial of the bird. My, my sister was watching it with me and she just went, is it the bird that's going to haunt them? <laughs> Which I really like the idea of. This whole, the, the beast is Tweety the bird. <laughs> and then aside from that, I... I, I do kind of, I quite, I find that second act, like where you say the second act lull takes place. I do find that quite interesting in terms of how you compare how much kind of like personality you get from um, Steve and Diana's, the parents, and how much charisma there is coming from Craig T. Nelson and, uh, is it Lobeth, Lobeth Williams? Joe Beth, is it? Yeah. Yeah, Joe Beth Williams. Um, that they're, they're they are so charismatic and so lovable as yeah, the mum and so. dad, yeah. I think, in the first half. And I do think that low in the second that is quite convincing at like really showing their exhaustion and their um, exasperation at the kind of ho- seemingly hopeless situation that they found themselves in that doesn't end up having much hope in it at all until um, Zelda Rubenstein comes in as ta- Tangina. Um, who again has that level of kind of charisma that escapes that yeah. second act level, yeah, I for think. Sure. But I, I do think that kind of it work it it does work to kind of express a certain um, wandering in the dark element to it that um, builds into a more like you say um, active um, course of action from the family in that final third. And that that final third, I think, is is so much fun because it is uh, Hooper and and Spielberg. I I think both in the writing and the execution of it, both just going like, all right, what tricks haven't we thrown yeah. out here? I I think back to that really cool um, trombone shot in the corridor that elongates the distance between yeah. Diana and the daughter, the children's room when they're being. Uh, threatened to be pulled back into the portal and then you get this really horrible bit where Diana falls into the backyard where um, the swimming pool is being dug out and all these coffins and skeletons emerge from um, the from underneath that as this kind of point where their house is being built is literally bubbling over with the kind of anger of the um, bodies that have been buried there so to speak, and being robbed of having this uh, <laughs> this life force from the from Carol Ann in there in the other side, as it as it were, and and missing that kind of element for for them that having had that yanked away, and then this just kind of complete outburst. And again, that that's another that that's another element I was going to mention as well in terms of like the kind of myth around this film. Have you ever heard of that? The myth around it that those were real skeletons used. In that <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, I don't think I have either. Apparently, um, Spielberg back back in the early eighties, it was apparently cheaper to use a real skeleton than a what? fake. What? Yeah, th- as Hooper found out making Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and this apparently was not a fact that was made known to Joe Beth Williams until after they shot the scene. And a lot of people attribute um, the poltergeist curse to the fact that they used real skeletons in this scene. <laughs> I really loved her performance in it. She was my favourite performance. Yeah, she's, she's I loved I, I think they're so good. I thought she was so good. I think she's, she actually, in, going back to that sort of Spielberg debate, actually one of the things is that she really struck me as, and that might be a period thing, but she has that real, she has a very Spielbergian beauty about her. The sort of, the look and the way she's presented and the energy she brings to it and the way she radiates. It really reminded me a lot of um, sort of uh, some of the Indiana Jones, uh, particularly Karen Allen in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And she actually felt like a very Spielbergian leading lady in that regard. Um, and I thought she had that slightly uninsistent but completely tangible beauty as well that I associate with a lot of his leading ladies at that time too. Um, but I thought she was so charming and so lovable. And she also completely felt she was the heartbeat of the movie. Pretty Nelson's great, but she just she just oozed. She was where I that when she was proactive and when she went uh, and when she was forced out of her comfort zone in that third act. That's when the movie really got its talons into me, and I was like, right, I'm yeah. I'm with yeah. you now. I just thought it worth saying that I thought she was. She, and I looked through her CV as well, and she seems to have worked fairly steadily for a long time. But um, mm-hmm. but I not I thought she was terrific, really, really brilliant, really, really worthy of um, some of the other great heroines that we've had in in Amblin films over the years. Yeah. So uh, that again, not something that completely escaped my um my memory from when I saw it last. Mm. I think there was there was some beats associated with her character that I found weirdly quite touching. I, I'm quite. In these times, I'm quite attuned to physical contact in films, and there were two instances of um, of women comforting her. There, were, there was the, the the doctor parapsychologist who, as as they as the as they were leaving, uh, she gave her a hug and, and then tried to reassure her. And mm. then when um, when uh, Tan Tangina Barons comes in later on and says, "Your daughter is alive. We can get her out." Uh, Joe Beth, <laughs> Joe Beth. She, she, yeah, she, she cries and, and they embrace each other. I think there's something so sweet about that physical reassurance. And I, I found that very, very mm. touching in this context. Um, juxtaposed with the scene of the dad and the boss <laughs> talking business and hiding their emotions <laughs> and distracting uh, from their true feelings and, and talking business and logistics. But yeah, yeah, I, know, I, I agree, Dan. I think she was very much the heart of the film. And uh, there were some very, very surprisingly emotional beats, I think, attached to her character. I, I'm, the strength of like, particularly the parents' performances, is the only thing that's kind of slightly intriguing me to seek out the se- at least the second one, because um, I should say there are there are two uh, two other Poltergeist movies in the this initial franchise, neither of which were had Spielberg's involvement in at all, um, and by all accounts aren't very good, and they make they change the whole premise. It's not just because they were built on a it was built on a cemetery. It's something to do with an old pagan cult leader um, who's still around, and it <laughs> sounds like the mythos gets a little less interesting. <laughs> yeah, maybe give those a miss. I'd, I've forgotten those sequels, actually. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen them, Dan? No, I, I, I haven't. Uh, again, I must have known at the time they existed, but um, when it was looking through, doing a bit of reading around this and, and watching the film, that I came across the fact there were. Um, and it doesn't feel like, actually, obviously of that period, um, so many of the, the big sort of horror franchises at that time, including Texas Chainsaw, which we've talked about a bunch, their sequels are of varying quality, but it, they're very, they're very, esta- very established in the zeitgeist as things that, that, uh, that exist and things that should invoke curiosity. These Poltergeist ones seem to be complete, uh, like, they, mu- they must be nothing films, because it doesn't feel like the fact that yeah. Poltergeist, ha- Poltergeist has sequels 
is 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 is, is, is in the collective consciousness anywhere. I was really surprised when I found that out. Um, so I, I guess probably I, I will not seek them out. Is the answer? Yeah, because again, again, they kind of largely just operate for me in terms of that larger extra textual narrative across all of them that I had before even going to see this one around like I mean so many horror films have the this moniker of a movie a cursed movie and all three of them apparently ha- uh, had car- they had cast members die before or after and, and include like Hever O'Rourke who plays the young Carol Ann died when she was 12 years old just before um, Poltergeist 3 was released and she is the only one apparently in all three of them. Um, I, I think I'm correct in saying that. But yeah, it, a lot of these movies seem to just end up with that just simply because they are films that deal with occult or supernatural elements. I mean, I read the story about the teenage girl who I guess the teenage daughter is the character that I would jettison from the movie. I don't I don't think she adds anything. Of, narratively, I'm not quite sure why that character exists in the film. Not, not a criticism of the performance. She's fine. But I just I didn't really get what that character it didn't even she wasn't even like a rational like I expected her to be the a voice of reason in the dad's ear while the other the kid and the mum fought in the other ear and he was going to be sort of the uh, that was going to be one of the battles that was going to be wrought over the film and I didn't really thought think that didn't actually manifest at the end but I did read that she that I, I was unaware she also died in extraordinarily tragic circumstances oh, shit. Yeah. shortly after this film came out yeah she was strangulated by an ex boyfriend and uh, very sad sounds like an awful awful thing but I didn't know the little the little girl had died as well I didn't yeah. Know. She was only 12, 12 years old when, and it was, I think, literally like a month or two before Poltergeist 3 came out. And then a couple of older actors who were involved in number two also died from less kind of um, unexpected means. But um, yeah, so it, again, it for me, it always, I always feel a little uneasy with those kind of curses, monikers being attached to like genuinely tragic yeah instances in like, these people's lives like it never feels quite right <laughs> they're fun until they aren't right that's the thing when someone has a spooky like you know you hear about on the omen like people a lot of people i think believe almost died or mm. were almost involved in tragic circumstances and that's kind of fun to think about but when actual people start dying then that's that's less charming yeah all righty i think i uh, unless anyone has any other couple points I'm, I'm just looking over my notes and i think the only last thing i want and as kind of a lighter point to move away from the kind of darkness of the curse is, I think Poltergeist contains one of the best movie dogs of all time. <laughs> I, I I love him. It, the film opens with him going around the house, checking on the kids and kind of like tucking them in. And there's points as well where like Robbie's being, the, Robbie the youngest son is being sent away to go stay with the grandparents. And the, the dog's going to go with him, but the dog does like a kind of, forlorn double back at the house before before hopping in the taxi and i was just like that dog <laughs> has such great dramatic yeah, timing he that dog's a doing. really good actor he's such a good boy I've, I've not, i didn't look at i didn't look at the dog's filmography actually what else has it been in i wouldn't mind checking out some more of its work because it has it does excellent excellent work in this is the dog credited i love the way in the 80s particularly dogs got like do- dogs used to get credited yes. for, like the dog, <laughs> yes. the dog the dog in gremlins is credited and i can't remember what its name is but it has an amazing name um, I'd be interested to see if the dog's credited. Probably not on IMDb, but it might be on the film. He's called Buzz, apparently. I've just looked it up. Yeah, 
<laughs> I, I found it on a website called moviepause.com. <laughs> Did you make that website? That's not the kind of thing you'd make, Andy. It, it, it does sound like something I would make, but um, unfortunately, someone's gotten there before me. <laughs> Our favourite movie dogs, E. E Buzz is his name. That's like a northern expression. E Buzz. But yes, what a good boy. What a good boy. That's a nice, a much nicer note to end this discussion on, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think Thank so. Thank you for that. Um, so that, that does wrap up our time here on uh, Poltergeist, Toby Hooper's, not Hopper's film from 1982. Um, What's our film next week? It's uh, well, it's the first big, like first proper spill. It's the one that one, gave Amblin it? its logo. It's the one that gave Amblin its logo. It is, of course, 1982's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Um, and as always, um, if you don't have it uh, to disc, I'll, I'll let you know where you can find it. Um, it is streaming on Now TV, and you can uh, rent or buy it digitally from Chile, Rakuten TV, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, Microsoft Store. Apple TV and Sky Store, so there's again, it's quite a quite readily available one, and I imagine a lot of people have this. I think I've got about three yeah. or four different disc versions. I've got I've got a DVD <laughs> and a Blu-ray, so I can I can lend you guys that if you want. Any any listeners who haven't seen it, um, just give me a shout. <laughs> Pop it in the post. <laughs> if you like today's episode, folks, do give us a like and a subscribe, and write us a review. We'd very much appreciate that. Uh, also, give us a follow on Twitter at Ramblin Amblin. That's at Ramblin Amblin. And if you've got any thoughts uh, before next week's film about ET, uh, do tweet them at us or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. That's ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Uh, let us know your thoughts and we'll share them on the next episode. Lovely. And I, just for, I think the last thing we have to do is thank you, Dan, for joining us for Poltergeist. Um, I've very much enjoyed t- chatting films with the three of you again because we used to have a student radio show and and this has felt like the kind of closest we've gotten back to it and <laughs> since then. <laughs> so thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure, Mr. <laughs> Kelly. Uh, lovely to be here. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was uh, really... Um, I thought it was just a great, great discussion. Like I said, like Andy said, it's it's so much fun to chat movies with you guys. And I think, actually, in retrospect, this was such a fun movie to chat about because... I just had no pre- preconceived notions going in, and I think we, we cut it wide open. So I had a pleasure. Thank you for thanks, thanks for having me on. It was terrific. Terrific. We'll have you on again soon. Yeah, we look forward to having you back. And uh, take care till next time, listeners, where we'll be chatting about E.T., the extraterrestrial. Till then, goodbye. Ciao.